0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin talk about stuff.
1: Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include...
1: Boring Choices. E.L. Doheny. Epidiah Ravical. And
0: Jacob Burns.
1: Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror.
0: Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable
1: forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in R'lyeh.
0: In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote
1: Lost in Relay's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins.
0: Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. So That's why protect, or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost and Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes.
1: As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. the rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we have once more entered the friendly confines of the gaming hut, and since we're out of chips, it's time to order pizza, and that means giving the players choice and control, which means it takes an hour to order pizza, when Robin, (laughs) in the confines of the game does giving players choice and control likewise lead to scultifaction, no pizza, and general empty bellies logically speaking.
0: Right. So as an article of faith in tabletop role-playing, your job as GM is to the maximum extent possible, give your players range of choice in order to shape the narrative and to have the story go in the direction that they choose. So what do you do as GM? How do you respond when the players uh, choose to take the narrative in a direction that does not promise anything particularly interesting. And so I guess we can start by trying to think up some examples of of when this happens so we know what we're talking about. One of the stickiest examples is the tendency of players to avoid risk in games that assume that the characters will be taking a lot of fun, heroic risks. And part of that is that the different rule sets make different assumptions about whether a fight is a risk or a reward. And I think, in general, rule sets have moved more toward uh, thinking, oh, well, a game with fighting in it, well, a fighting is the feature. It's the cool, fun thing that's supposed to happen. So you don't punish players for getting into fights, and you don't have a world logic that discourages them from getting into fights. So even over the course, just of different iterations of D&D, earlier, the... Uh, idea of a fight as punishment like the wandering monster Uh, you know you had to get into a dumb fight with a dumb monster who had no treasure and that was a punishment so you had to be careful and only and really pick your fights carefully whereas now i think we've moved to more of a conception of here's the big set piece battle is the whole point of us getting together tonight we want to avoid situations that encourage you to think of yourself as a fragile first edition first level a d and d character and think of yourself as a heroic swashbuckling d and d character who is built to get into that fight, and certainly there's we can name all sorts of other uh, rule systems, RuneQuest, for example, uh, where <laughs> classically you, know, you, you can get an artery severed at any time, um, and so uh, Rollmaster, yeah, uh, you
1: have an artery severing is like a walk in the beach with Rollmaster. Yeah, you could have your eye fly off and kill one of your other players. I think,
0: and then you get into the whole question of whether there's a mismatch between the expectations of the scenarios and the logic of the people designing the the, the combat rules. But let's assume a a mismatch between players' expectation of risk and the system's uh, conception of the fight as the thing that's supposed to happen and you're supposed to move towards, so that uh, if, the player, uh, if the players get together and come up with a way to avoid having the fight, uh, or rather one player is really intent on having that happen and everybody else gets cheated of their fight because of something that player manages to, to engineer, the players have in this scenario moved things in an less interesting direction and less interesting being defined by the will of the collective group right if you've got an entire group of people who just feel a huge sense of emotional reward for getting to avoid danger that's sort of easy to do (laughs) (laughs) you don't have to run a big fight you just have to create a sense of threat and then let them avoid that. that 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 would be a breeze if everybody felt that way um another example is the uh the player who wants to uh retreat from uh, go. well i'm just going to go into my library and research things for uh for six weeks and do some you know some wood shedding i've got some alchemy to do so you guys all do something so there's the the problem of the one player who decides that their activity is not going to happen on stage and it's going to happen for a long time are there other examples you can think of ken of uh less than fascinating directions players can uh take a storyline in.
1: Um yes, although I want to sort of real fast sort of circle around because I think that we are sort of avoiding uh cleverly the fight with the goblin in the room, which is basically the sort of old school renaissance experience of playing D&D of saying, "No, I like the part where I'm trying to outthink a dangerous world that wants to eat me and going back and sort of playing that first edition 0th edition Uh, even red box, whatever kind of version of D and D where, yes, you're a fragile, terrified person, but your clevers and magics and whatnot will get you through a dungeon. And the trick is to get through a super dangerous dungeon with as little fighting as you possibly can. And if the GM and the players are on the same page there, that's even better and yeah, so you can, the,
0: the interesting thing there is it becomes a stealth exercise or it becomes a, a pick your fights. battles
1: exercise a, yep. a resource management exercise which as you know we've shown in Gumshoe is a pretty fun exercise to have. So I I I want to say that the, the the trick there is sort of to turn it on its head is to make sure that all outcomes are interesting and that's why the random table is such a crucial piece of technology for those kinds of games so you see um uh, the the OSR is sort of spiraling off into giving all manner of really cool things that could happen when you, you know, go through the other door instead of the one door. So, I want to just not, you know, we, we sort of with, with phrases like we've moved or, or even D&D has moved, I think you're sort of, uh, you know, cleverly avoiding the the fight with the really awesome beholder that, that lives there and is the OSR. But Leaving that aside, because we can talk about it in right. another segment.
0: And, and, and I, I would argue that you've jumped ahead to the next thing, which is how to make these things interesting. But-
1: yes. But the other way that uh, players' choice and control can lead to a less interesting outcome is if they choose too well is if they see something that you didn't see as the GM, and you're like, well, I've got every doorway is is uh, guarded by kobolds, there's no way you can get through without having a kobold, and they drill through the ceiling and go over and they say, Haha, here I am in the kobolds' treasure house, and I didn't have to fight a single kobold to do it. Now, yes, that is super cool, but it's super cool and it took 10 minutes instead of, the really awesome series of kobold fights that you had planned as sort of the emotional set piece. And that's a much harder thing to work around than simply saying, uh, no, really, look, you have a healing refresh. Fighting a kobold is not a bad thing uh, because you can mechanically train that out of people, but you don't want to train them out of being super clever and out thinking the scenario. And I think that's the bigger challenge, really, as both the GM and the designer, is to come up with games that reward both Outside the box super creativity and reward. Screw it. It's Monday night. I'm tired. I just want to fight kobolds head on interaction. And that is the this, this sort of the, the holy grail, I think, of the designer and of the home
0: GM. Right. And so the solution then, as I think you've already prefigured, is uh, something that seems initially uninteresting and, and uh, fruitless. How to make that have the suspense that you were intending the other thing that you thought would happen? How do you make the, these seemingly less interesting choices interesting. And so, as you point out, the games today that are inspired by uh, first edition d and and by earlier d and uh, answer that by doubling down on those uh, things that require stealth and resource management. But how do you uh, then take something, the, the surprise solution of a problem, And basically any anti-climax that comes about through good play, I think the way to start dealing with that is, first of all, make sure the players feel rewarded and have some sort of reinforcement from the fictional world to let them know that they've had a great big achievement where they've, uh, you know, tunneled past the big obstacle and can feel a sense of reward. And, you know, if you're stuck, you can just, uh, directly kind of address them and go, you understand what you've done, you know, that this is unprecedented in, in the history of uh, the gnome vault that you managed to get through here. All, you know, 40 previous adventuring parties, Their their bones are littered all over and You've done it. Right? Or hung give them up that, as trophies. <laughs> yeah. Give them that moment of triumph. Flash but forward a
1: hundred years to a bard singing their song.
0: But then find the real problem yeah. that, that flows. What is the, the new consequence? Well, the Ocean's Eleven that.
1: problem of uh, you've gotten into the vault that you can't get into. How do you get the 160 million gold pieces out of it?
0: Right. <laughs> and so find find a, a new thing to do. So that, to my mind, the players being overly clever is, as long as you remember not to make them feel cheated by the coming of a new problem uh is is not uh so hugely difficult. But how would you deal, Ken, with the player who's deliberately avoiding conflict to go and do something low intensity, like go off to their alchemical lab or, or I'm just gonna hang out with my uh friends here in the forest and we're gonna carouse for a while. How do you uh the first time you do that they do that you can have, you know, the homunculus rise from the from the lab or the sheriff's men show up to uh uh, chase away the outlaws. But what do you do the second time?
1: Well, um, what I, if, if someone is really, you know, uh, married to that notion and they're like, this is how my character behaves, then you take a leaf from good old Ars Magica, which, you know, sort of hardwires that into the game, and you say, great, that is terrific. What character do you want to play who will accompany the other four on the adventure? And it can be anybody, you you know, you can go out and you can hire an elven archer, you can go and you can promote an NPC bodyguard up to being a PC, or you can, uh, talk to that blacksmith's son or that, um, uh, arrow Smith's daughter who seemed to be really itching for a fight and are surprisingly high stat for someone who just sort of showed up in the village, um, ask them who they want to play on the adventure part. And don't say your character is not important. Don't say your character is not part of the party you're just playing two characters because you've decided that you're not playing the guy who's on the adventure and
0: we're going on an adventure. This druid is played by Jackie Earl Haley, and he's <laughs> going to be a recurring character for an, a story arc. So he must be important and powerful. Exactly. <laughs> and so,
1: so, so you present the, the, the player with a choice and you frame it as a, as a choice, a positive choice, not a punishment. Well, because you're not going on the adventure, you have to play Odo the fat and carry all the, all the baggage. You don't do that unless Odo the Fat is a beloved, uh, NPC and they kind of would get a kick out of playing Odo the Fat. And maybe if they're the kind of person who wants to commune with elves instead of go on the adventure, they're into the drama and the fun of it. And so they're like, no, I want to play Odo the Fat. That'd be awesome. But don't make them play Odo the Fat if they don't want to play Odo the Fat. If they want to play someone else boss, have a reason for someone else boss to join them on the adventure. And again, this is my Call of Cthulhu training. I don't believe that it breaks a party if every character is playing two or even three competent characters because, you know what? Triple the number of vampires. Problem solves itself. Okay, you're going to play that druid. Well, the druid is going to go and look (laughs) for leaves. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think you understand the parameter of the question. Play a character who will go into the dungeon. You can tell me why, but play a character who will go into the dungeon. I can't imagine anyone wanting to go into the dungeon. It's really scary there.
0: Well, congratulations.
1: Pick another game night. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, and and in fact, the, the the player that I've played with for years, who uh, is uh, risk averse and uh, has a tendency, to, the, the first instinct is, I'm just going to go and hang out over here. I have learned to just you know break the fourth wall, and and when the proposal is, oh well, I'm just going to go work on my experiments. It's like, what interesting or dangerous thing do you do? Uh, and and to frame it that way, so that the player still has the control of uh, what it is that the, the player is supposed to do, but realizes that part of their contribution at the table is to create something with some sort of stakes and interest uh, rather than just sort of vanish from the storyline for a while.
1: And another thing you can do is is if, if the player is, is uh, interested in engaging, um, you can say, look, you can do all that stuff. That's great stuff. And we can do it in email or we can do it over lunch or we can do it another time besides game night. Game night is when we everyone has an adventure. And if they want a blue book, blue book the heck out of it, because those players will contribute a lot more to the game and to the story. If they feel like they're getting sort of, um, privileged edit rights, uh, and can feel like they're co-authoring it with you, that is great. And that does a huge favor for you as GM, but just make sure that in exchange for getting these magic edit rights, you also have to actually, you know, um, uh, as, uh, Elliot Gould says in Ocean's Eleven get in the house and he says it in a way that we can't say without putting an explicit tag on it
0: right and to return to a piece of advice that we uh keep giving uh last time we gave it i think was in regard to convention games try and start as far into the interesting bit yes. of an adventure as you can so that uh the uh sort of chronic wanderer players uh who uh you know if you say well you're about to get on a plane uh, some players will go okay I'm on the plane and other players will go, oh, well, why are we getting on the plane? Let's get some manifests. What starts six different options, right? That they, uh, if it's going to be a struggle to, you know, make the other possible six different travel arrangements uh, interesting, try and go, okay, it starts, you're on a plane. And you can always turn it around. Uh, the player goes, well, why would I have gotten on the plane? Well, in fact, you had serious misgivings about getting on the plane, but finally you decided to go. Why is that? Uh, and that's the old turnaround thing so it again Were you
1: just B.A. Baracus and they had to hit you on the head to get you on the plane every time <laughs> <laughs> you know if that works yeah. for you <laughs> nope You there's no way you would have gotten on the plane take six hit points of damage that's from it being clonked on the head by the other five players
0: <laughs> right well when we're getting into uh, uh, head clonking uh, I think uh, the uh, gods of time will clonk us on the head if we don't move to our next segment so let's do that shall we Do intervals between Ken's Time Machine segments leave you listless, bored, and
1: itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of
0: chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty Velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure! Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go
1: back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria.
0: But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse. History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. It's once more time for the History Hut. And this is not just any ordinary History Hut, but a History Hut in which I found something in my research and tucked it away for later. As we're approaching the release of Cthulhu Confidential, we're going to start salting in uh, different segments inspired by uh, bits of research into uh, noir-era Los Angeles that mostly that I couldn't quite uh, fit into the book. Uh, there are three settings in that book. Uh, Ruth Tillman has done uh, New York with her uh, investigator uh, Viv Sinclair, and uh, Chris Spivey did Wartime Washington, D.C. with his uh, scientific investigator Langston Wright, and Dex Raymond, my L.A. character, uh, has all sorts of cool uh, L.A. exposition to bring to the fore. There's uh, the psychogeography of L.A. Uh, is uh, an embarrassment of riches, and one character who I couldn't quite bring into uh, the narrative because he's just a little bit too early for the '30s setting is a guy named E.L. Doheny, who uh, had a big footprint in the history of uh, both. Uh, the oil industry and Mexican politics, and uh, was responsible for building a couple of key buildings in Los Angeles, was involved uh, later in a uh, famous uh, murder cover-up. But uh, he's most notable. uh, Ken, uh, where does the name E.L. Doheny most appear on your radar? He most appears on my radar, actually, as the
1: father of the L.A. oil industry, because like you, I have done ample research into the psychogeography and weirdness of Los Angeles. And if you were looking for psychogeography and weirdness, going to the oil industry is an excellent start. Um, and then secondarily, as one of the shadowy figures uh, in the Teapot Dome scandal, which, of course, was famously um, uh, a grave scandal in which a government official accepted a hundred thousand dollar bribe. Can you believe it? A government official in, in those days, that was a crime. Uh, who, who knew? In the 1920s, th- yeah. it was illegal for a government official to take $100,000 from a, a private organization and then later on do favors
0: for it. Now, not so much. Right. Uh, well, let's start off then with the with the oil industry. In 1892, he strikes oil in L.A., uh, and that's what changes the, – the first thing that starts to change, uh, the Los Angeles area from a sleepy cow town – where uh the rich people are the people who own uh ranches uh and orchards and begins to bring an an infusion of money into it and so there's sort of two big booms in LA well, maybe there's more later, yeah. but there's probably a post-war <laughs> boom, too. But the-
1: I think that uh, his- history would agree with you, Robin. There is a post-war boom in Los Angeles. yeah, And the aerospace boom in the 80s. Yes, indeed. But the booms we are talking about
0: here... LA's a boom in town, everybody. Go there! Boom number one was the oil boom in the uh, 1890s, and that's uh, because of uh, Doheny. And then uh, in the 20s, everything goes uh, uh, crazy again, just as part of the general craziness of, of the 20s and the freedom of uh, LA. But uh, Doheny takes... The oil strike that he uh, gets going for himself in L.A., and then he builds on that and later buys or uh, finds uh, oil in Mexico and finds uh, big strikes that uh, make the original L.A. strike, which changed the face of L.A., into an even bigger deal. And so he wound up building out this small little uh, port town in Mexico called uh, Tampico into basically the Doheny Empire. And even by the by the 30s and 40s, Tampico is still sort of a watchword for uh, corruption and craziness. There's like a Stan Kenton song where the lyrics are all about what happens when you go down to Tampico, Mexico, and all the terrible things that, that happen to you down there. And it's also referred to a lot in the Southwest blues tradition of the uh, African-American blues artists of the 30s often refer to Tampico as this uh, hub of uh, scum and uh, and villainy. Does Tempe- and a lot of this
1: is because in 1938, um, uh, there is a, a, a giant, well, there's a whole bunch of controversies, but in 1938, the Mexican government, which at that time was a socialist government, uh, nationalized the oil industry and took it over. And so there was a great deal of propaganda and who not by the American um uh, communist party and other pro-socialist types uh in favor of the Mexican government doing that and obviously the oil companies uh were very much against that and so it was it was big news because there was a a uh, sort of a attempt to push Tampico's corruption and awfulness up into the public uh opinion so that we wouldn't just invade Mexico again like we did the last time American interests were upset and president Wilson sailed down and shelled the city of Veracruz for no reason
0: Right. And even earlier for Doheny, in the, even in the teens, he has a whole private army yeah. uh, that, that he's got in order to defend his holdings. So the Mexican Revolution can go on as far as uh, it wants, as far as he's concerned, as long as it doesn't mess with him. And so he hires his private army. He's accused... That was the traditional opinion at the time. Yes. Uh, he's accused of ordering the assassination in 1920 of the Mexican president, Vinustasia Carranza. Does that appear in your uh, uh, elliptonic or otherwise radar?
1: Um, Carranza is sort of famous and I have not, I've, I've been promising myself deep dive into the Mexican civil war, uh, forever. Mexican civil war and the Irish civil war are two civil wars that are way crazier and more, uh, complex and strange than outsiders think they are. And I've promised myself a deep dive into the Mexican civil war forever and I have not yet done it. But the conventional understanding, which is possibly true, is that Carranza was sort of the last best hope of the respectable democratic uh, Mexico and that his death sort of let hell out for breakfast and that's when everything went to the wall and you had um, uh, basically your choice of socialism or uh, rampant uh, warlordism and the socialist won and that was how Mexico was governed for the next uh, 50 years.
0: Uh, speaking of the Irish Revolution... Uh, Doheny was also America's biggest funder of the IRA and Sinn Féin. Because his
1: name was Doheny. He was part of the old Irish uh, uh, bosses that used to run Los Angeles.
0: But this gets us into uh, uh, 1921, 1922, and the Teapot Dome scandal. So this is uh, the uh, quaint scandal that you were referring to earlier, but it leads in a bunch of other directions. And it's probably, if you know history, you may know there was a Teapot Dome scandal and might not quite know what that was, but it involves the National Park Service, right, Ken? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because there is uh, oil underneath the National Park Service, and the oil is considered part of the naval reserves that you can't drill there, because if we need oil in the war, we're going to have to drill it out in a hurry, and where better to keep it than under the National Park, which makes sense, right?
0: Yeah, that's a good place to store it. There's all sorts of uh, bighorned elks and bears mm-hmm, and stuff and to such. protect it. Uh,
1: and so the, the, the elks and other rangers are there to protect it, but they cannot protect it apparently from, among other things, slant drilling, which is why uh, Doheny testifies, uh, why did you wind up with all the oil out of the Naval Reserve? And he says, oh, that was just slant drilling. If I have a long straw, I can drink your milkshake from across the room. And this was his defense, right? Was, oh no, I didn't bribe anyone to get access to that oil. I just slant drilled into the oil. Right. So it's all it's okay, right?
0: Yeah, and <laughs> technically speaking, It was his confederate Albert Fall, who we talked about in a previous episode, as ordering the assassination of Pat Garrett. Here he is again, uh, twenty years later, uh, is partners with El Doheny uh, in the Teapot uh, Dome scandal. And Albert Fall and Doheny had been partners when they were both prospectors back in the old West,
1: uh, in in olden times. Um, Doheny and uh, Fall uh, met up in um, Prescott, Arizona, I think, or in uh, Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, running around and looking for things to, to buy and to mine. And, uh, Albert Fall, uh, was, uh, one of his partners along with a guy named Charles Canfield. And Canfield is the guy who eventually said, if I'm going to not find anything, I'm going to not find anything in Los Angeles where the weather's better. And, uh, Doheny followed him. And that's when Doheny said, they have oil bubbling out of the ground and no one has drilled for it. These people are idiots. And he yeah. drilled oil.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and that's an example of what makes Doheny sort of a really interesting figure because he's, his, Uh, tentacles go through so many different uh, stories of the end of the uh, 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. And he also, uh, in terms of his influence over Los Angeles and therefore out of the culture that comes out of Los Angeles, a big chunk of that also is that uh, he built Greystone, which is a uh, complex of uh, buildings. He started doing it in the uh, basically around the teens in this uh, unoccupied area of uh, nothing called Beverly Hills, and so <laughs> he's basically what he builds there becomes the nucleus for what is still one of the most famous super rich enclaves. And uh, he was certainly no hill- hillbilly, but he did he did strike oil that bubbled out of the ground, and then he founded Beverly Hills.
1: <laughs> so if you're so if you're looking for a secret occult. Signal uh, involving the legacy of Edward Doheny begin examining old episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies for signals to you. Right. So anyway, uh, back to Teapot Dome. I should point out that Doheny was acquitted of bribing Albert Fall. Albert Fall was convicted of taking a bribe. But <laughs> Oh, yes. So, uh, Doheny is acquitted, and then, uh, as if to, um, uh, take a backhanded slap at Fall for being such a terrible, uh, pardon the pun, Fall guy, uh, he forecloses on Fall's house for not paying back the $100,000 mortgage credit that he had extended to him, which was, of course, the alleged bribe. So, Doheny, um, comes out of it at least temporarily on top, and Albert Fall is the guy who, uh, goes down for, uh, the, uh, controversy, although that begins the, I, I think that's the sort of, you know, first shot at Doheny that, that lands a little bit and then everyone begins to come after him and he begins to be hounded by, uh, shareholder, uh, lawsuits and crusading DAs and politicians trying to make a deal and all kinds of, um, uh, of, of bad problems begin for the later and indeed, life.
0: That, that is what uh, leads to the uh, Greek tragic vengeance that he winds up suffering because right. uh, during the scandal. He uses his son, uh, Edward Doheny Jr., better known as Ned, as a bagman, man. And uh, his son and uh, his son's uh, personal secretary, personal assistant, a guy named Hugh Plunkett, are the ones who uh, go along to deliver the satchel full of the $100,000. And uh, guess what happens when you're trying to unravel a conspiracy? Well, you go after the weak link, the guy on the outside. And so the guy named Plunkett, a guy named Plunkett. And so the investigators start uh, narrowing their search and and putting the squeeze on Plunkett. And then and then it becomes a matter of what you choose to believe about historical uh, murder. So what happens is that in 1929, either uh, Plunkett, uh, who is becoming unraveled due to the pressure placed on him by the Teapot Dome scandal, uh, loses his mind and shows up at Greystone and uh, murders Ned Doheny, the son, and then turns the gun on himself, or the uh, relationship between Ned and Hugh is not strictly uh, one of uh, employer-employee, but there is a uh, there's a love story going on there that goes tragically awry, and in fact, it is Ned who shoots Hugh and then turns the gun on himself. So there's a murder-suicide, and the question was, who is the murderer and who is a suicide, the official version, uh, because, uh, Doheny owns big chunks of the LA press. He doesn't own a newspaper. He just owns a bunch of reporters so much that Hearst used to complain that he couldn't find honest reporters because they were all on Doheny's payroll. That's the official story, but probably the more likely story is that it was a crime of passion. It was actually, uh, Ned who, uh, killed his uh his lover hugh plunkett and uh and then himself and so anyway that is uh you know not court justice but it's a uh, greek drama style justice in which doheny senior's use of doheny junior to accomplish the teapot dome scandal uh results in a sort of familial punishment that uh the legal system could never dish out
1: yes and at the end of his life in 1935 um uh, estelle doheny his widow burned all of his letters and business documents um uh, as sort of a screw you to everybody um and also because she was probably sick of answering questions about the teapot dome scandal one imagines but that sort of puts paid and provides a lovely um anything can be true mystery cap on your el doheny story because whatever it is you can say oh Sadly, Estelle
0: Doheny burned it in a big old bonfire in 1935. But a couple of things that were left behind, the Petroleum Securities Building, this beautiful Deco uh, office structure in uh, in uh, Los Angeles uh, where uh, Raymond Chandler worked at one time, uh, is a legacy of Doheny's. And also The biggest Catholic church in Los Angeles, the one where the lesser half of the original white establishment, the Roman Catholic half, uh, all gathered, uh, and that was St. Vincent's Church. And also
1: left behind were uh, the genetics that eventually became Larry Niven, because Larry Niven's great-grandparents were E.L. and Estelle Doheny.
0: Wow. And uh, in addition to a maker of culture, there's some uh, cultural products that have uh, Doheny uh, definitely in them. Daniel Pl- uh, Plainview from uh, There Will Be Blood is given Albert Fall's best line, but is otherwise clearly a version of E.L. Doheny. And uh, General Sternwood from Chandler's uh, The Big Sleep, uh, the one who is uh, uh, described as being like a spider and has virtually no blood left in him and must therefore uh, hang out in the, uh, in the hot house in order to continue to survive. He is uh, clearly a version of Doheny as the house that features in that novel is clearly a Greystone. And also there's a novel by B. Traven, who's the uh, writer of Treasure the Sierra Madre, which I have not read, but it's called The White Rose. And apparently the, that is a novelization of the Mexico shenanigans of E.L. Doheny. So I'll have to add that to my uh, high stack of potential reading.
1: And Chandler apparently uh, incorporated the Plunkett Doheny murder-suicide in The High Window. Yep. So that's yet another uh, even Raymond Chandler realizes there's more there. You can go at that well from all manner of different directions, uh, milkshake style.
0: Yes. Chandler, uh, used a lot of real LA history, including LA current events at the time and wove them into his novels. And, uh, you couldn't not weave Doheny into the, uh, noir element. So there's one of the real life historical, uh, figures that creates the sense of doom and foreboding and corruption that hangs over uh, hard-boiled Los Angeles. And on that note, I think it's time to head on over to see what our next segment might portend. Ken, what did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths... That sounds be fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a
1: metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right?
0: Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Rune Punk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy, beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of
1: Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come
0: from Askfageln. Ask for a- Ask gallon by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by patrons exactly like Lewis R. Evans, Sam Kreider, Stuart Robertson, Aaron Sapp, and
1: Jeremiah Genest. Once more, we find ourselves cast back in time to Indianapolis, Indiana, home of Gen Con, the best four days in gaming, which have not yet technically begun for us, as we sit opposite the glorious living sculpture of an air shaft and air conditioning fan, bringing you game designer extraordinaire Epidia Ravichal. Is that Rabichal?
2: Ravichal? Ravichal. Ravichal.
1: Excellent. Okay. Um, famous for Dread. The Jenga-based game of horror that I alone amongst all game critics find m- much more interesting in its character generation, its scenario creation—literally <laughs> everything except the second, mechan- the central mechanic—I love. Uh, everyone else but me, it differs from me on this on this matter. Um, do you think that the Jenga-ness of Dread has overcome everything else you wanted to do with the game, or do you think, nope, I pretty much wanted to get people to play Jenga and
2: scream? Is <laughs> <laughs> um- yeah well, I mean, the Jenga is the game showing its little leg on the street. there right, you know, yeah. trying to get people's attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other stuff uh, got incorporated first in right. other other games that I saw other people doing. Uh, the character questionnaire showed up in parlor LARPs and things like that almost immediately. And I could trace the back when we were demoing uh, Dread at Gen Con when it was in Milwaukee. All those years ago, before we actually put the book out, I would demo it for people, and then they would put games out before I got around to putting my own game out. And I would see these little bits show <laughs> up, and I was very happy about that. That's uh, so. I think there's definitely parts of it that have snuck out and uh, have built their own life, but they're obviously overshadowed by the Jenga itself. I think that's. Yeah. It's the Jenga game. When I go to find out what people have to say about it on the internet, I can't search for dread because that's way too common of a word. Mm-hmm. But if I do dread and Jenga, I'm there. Um,
1: I would think Epidaea would actually narrow down the. Well, yeah, the, the
2: I don't want to know terms. what people think about me. That's, <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. so. Just I played a, a game. It had dread. It had Jengas. I don't know what was involved in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just um, and obviously the response is usually pretty solid. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say they didn't like playing. Right.
2: Or, yeah. Well, um, I mean, there
0: there are there are haters out there, but no, you need haters. Someone, someone hates everything to sell in this games. World. And
2: that's how it works.
0: <laughs> so, why were you never tempted to just uh, do Jenga and a submarine, or Jenga in a uh, with uh, barbarians, or just right. keep reiterating that? I'm actually well, coming around to that now.
2: Um, it took a while because
0: with it, it took being, you many years to sell out.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what, but finally Well it, like water on stone. Yeah. <laughs> when we first well, okay, so yeah, I'm bolt headed. Uh so that's one thing. And when we when we first created the game, we pitched it to uh James Wallace. He at the time he was looking for games for Hogshead at mm-hmm. the time and uh he said, Oh, this is you know, he he liked it but he wanted it fit to something. We were just like it's generic horror and I was like it doesn't be fit to anything. And now I've come 180 on that and uh, in Worlds Without Master two issues ago I did a sword and sorcery one that uses it it's uh, a much smaller format like it's a, it's kind of a love story to or love song to Clark Ashton Smith with a little bit of Jack Vance because I can't uh, those are good songs yeah <laughs> uh, but it, yeah and that one is uh, it still has the horror element but it's the sword and sorcery horror and um, I'm mash it up a little bit with some of the uh, move architecture that comes out of Apocalypse World and that plays out really well for making a very short
0: uh, document to tell one particular scenario or whatever. Right. So you mentioned Worlds Without Master, that yeah. is your new sort of hybrid uh, well it's not so new now, right? It a,
2: yeah, it's like three years, three years. old. Right? Um, it still feels new. But, it's, me, but there's yeah. a new
0: one every so often because it's periodical so that's a really interesting uh, model and it's also interesting in that you're combining uh, games and fiction and comics in the in in every issue so uh, do you want to sort of explain a bit more about uh, what it is and how it came to be and and how you put it together?
2: Well um, (laughs) the story involves drugs Uh, (laughs) but they were legally prescribed drugs Uh, for for (laughs) For a long time... Rob can edit that part out. Yeah. <laughs> For a long time, I wanted to do uh, a periodical, but it was one of those things that was, like, that's one good way to go bankrupt. Yes. So let's yeah. just... It's certainly an efficient way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't so not speak to what's morality, but it's yeah. super fast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I kept, you know, just, you just keep it in the back of your head. And then uh, one summer, a confluence of events had occurred uh, where the... Patreon, um, the crowd funding platform that does—it was designed for YouTubers, but it does for anybody who puts out uh, periodic art, art. Or, uh, content, right. whatever—to um, get their audience to support it. And I realized that that was a way to basically not guarantee, but come really close to guaranteeing my budget each each issue. So I could say, "Well, I know I'm going to make this much, so I can." Go ahead and do this. Do this much. Yeah, and so I was thinking about doing that, and then at the time I got, I had to get some surgery, and they put me on some painkillers, and next thing I know, I had launched my Patreon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, heroin's a hell
2: of a yeah. <laughs> Uh So that was a lot of fun, and um, I'm really happy with it. It's, it's uh, the intent was to get sort of flex my fiction a little bit more. I mean, that was. Uh, what I had gone to school for, I really enjoy role-playing games, but I figured I had an audience that was interested in the role-playing games, maybe they'd be interested in the fiction, or at the very least, they'd be willing to help support the fiction while paying for the role-playing games, so that was, that's how that began. Now, speak,
1: you, you mentioned Apocalypse World, mm-hmm. uh, you are lucky enough to live sort of in a, a little confluence, yeah. <laughs> a little mini-Renaissance Florence of independent game design. Right. Yeah. Because there's you, there's obviously Emily Kerboss, mm-hmm. uh, who lives, I think, in your house. Yeah. If very, I recall very close to me. Yeah. Close. Um there's uh, uh Vincent Baker who mm-hmm. did uh, uh Apocalypse World and many other magnificent designs. Uh Julia Ellingbow mm-hmm. lives I think in that general neck of the woods. Right? Yeah she's just across the street right, right. so there's so and you and have Meg Baker too. Meg Baker, you have a number of Joshua Newman, you have a yeah. number of really <laughs> you know Solid, great designers that, I don't know, maybe they're all in your game group, or you guys, I know you get together regularly, because I horned in last time (laughs) I was in in New England. Obviously, that would be an artistic challenge, because any artist responds to other artists doing things near them with a sort of a primate, you know, bare teeth. But is there a degree of collaboration that also exists that you find... Um, that if you had to, you know, move to you know some mountain in the middle of Wyoming, you could digitally do everything you do now, but you wouldn't have that human connection. Would that? How would that change your game creation and your creative process?
2: Well, yeah, I, I, it's definitely been a it, it's a mountain of privilege, is mm-hmm. what it is, <laughs> and I'll gladly stand on top of it. Um, That's what mountains are for. Yeah. Uh, well, the first thing was just having people doing these things lets you know that you can do these things. I think that's like like the very first barrier to game design. You're like noodling around with something, but nobody you don't, if you don't have like somebody in your life that just did it and then you're like, oh, that if they can do it, I can do it. Uh, but also I think it's ideal if that person's not in your life.
1: Yeah. You know, you're <laughs> like, they're just some joke on the internet you're like, well, that was nonsense. Right. I can and, beat that with my eyes closed.
2: But also like there is definitely um we don't like all of our design uh, aesthetics don't necessarily yeah. mesh uh but we do can we can find stuff in what everyone else is doing, and sometimes we'll do things that we know is going to anger somebody else, not yeah. anger but like just like yeah. it's a little bit of a oh, well, challenge. An anger. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah aesthetically anger yeah, yeah, I was just I, I thinking of when when I did Vast and starlet i I came in with like this prototype that was just made of. Packaging tape and printouts and things. It's just this tiny little business card of a role-playing game, and I just went into coffee and slid it across the table to Vincent. He hated me. Like <laughs> in that moment, he's reading. He's like, mm. uh, but that's great because he does things that I am uh, tremendously jealous of. And right, and yeah. everyone in that community does things where you do something. They make something, and you're like, oh. Uh, so, name a Vincent Baker role that made you seethe with jealousy. Uh, in the most I feel like I'm shilling for Worlds Without Master, but I published it in Worlds Without Master for a reason. I played it and I said I yeah, want to okay. put it in there. Uh,
1: if, if you uh, if you're shilling, um, we may have to cut all that out of the podcast. If there's one thing, Ken and Robin <laughs> talk about stuff stands yeah. for. So <laughs> no, no, there's no, no shilling, promotion, no plugging, no uh, over tours, over no promoting of any kind,
2: no well, hats. We um, are hatless. I will try to hide it then. But, <laughs> so he wrote a game called Amazons, which uh, is a, you have two players and at least two GMs. And only two players. The two players each play Amazons that are dedicated to one another. And um, the GMs will get around and they'll fill out sheets about the problem that they have to deal with. And the Amazons will get around. And there's a couple things in that game that really stand out. And one of them is uh, the experience system is a list of experiences that you are just supposed to check off when you get them. It's not like an advancement thing, but these things, they're things like faced down an army, or slain a monster, or lived as a man, or raised a family, or uh, I think there's some there's definitely some about dying, and just so you, your goal in the game is just to mark off as many of those as you want to see done. And it's so, like, you just so many times you sit down in a game and you really enjoy the world, or you have a sort of a more general sense of the theme, but you don't have any directly actionable moment at that very beginning and so you're like yeah i'm ready to play this pirate on the wait a minute what do i want to do here what's going on and having those experiences is great and then he has it's so trite but his combat system is this wonderful really tight updated version i envision it as an updated version of tunnels and trolls where both sides roll they put all their points together and face each other but it at the end the situation is completely changed uh, not necessarily like we beat you or anything like that but in one role it falls out that this person's off running that direction, that person
0: is a severe injury and it's just really, really neat. Uh, so, uh, Worlds Without Master is uh, your uh, magazine but it's mm-hmm. not just you, you're not yeah. the only contributor to it so if someone is interested in contributing, what are you looking for?
2: Uh, well, definitely sword and sorcery, which I hate to get into like the definitional part of it. Well, again, of, definitional discussion is yeah. also, also <laughs> part never, never, never done. Um, can't, can't countenance it. Yeah. Well, I say specifically that I'm looking for stuff uh, that is from the fantasy part of the genre that doesn't necessarily have like elves and dwarves and you know like the the, the stuff that's already handily. Done in our hobby. I want to delve into things like Conan and Elric and and Gray Mouser, the Tanith Lee's uh, uh, flat earth stories, or uh, I'm going to stumble on some names here. But I'm not also very tied to like really like I, one thing I really love about Sword and Sorcery is how it just it'll take any genre in it, it, Anytime it wants to. I mean, because it starts in the pulps where they're. If the story doesn't sell to a uh, western, well, and we'll just right. throw some swords in there, and there you go, and uh, and that's great. Like I really love the idea that at any moment, uh, spoiler Conan can run into an alien and just be like, "What is this?" And, I don't
1: think it's technically a spoiler. Yeah. The
2: story is in the public domain, literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, and and that's what basically what I'm looking for. Uh, Fiction-wise, and then for the games, I want stuff that hits upon those same themes, but I want it to exist in a very small word count. Yeah, obviously <laughs> you, you need a compressed space, yeah. or else it's not a magazine. Yeah. And it just needs to be, like, punchy. Like, here's the thing that's and, happening. And what is your word range? Uh, it's, I say 2,500 words. I personally break that rule, I think, every single issue. It's or something.
0: <laughs>
1: it's like when you, uh, when you, uh, used, when I used to read National Review, it was like, oh, William F. Buckley is writing
0: something. Oh, man,
1: this is going on. You so <laughs> know, he knew that no one was going to cut him.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically. So, beyond... Knowing the difference between sword and sorcery mm-hmm. and Tolkien-esque high fantasy, are there things that you get pitched all the time that you reject
2: because you get them all the time? Um, well, my rejection process is not that well honed yet because I had I've only put out eleven issues at this point, and I've just been kind of like, like I, I I don't I have to reject almost everything because I only yeah I put yeah, out a few so many, issues a year so many things. and I only put out one piece of fiction that isn't my own in each issue uh
0: so for is, those two coveted slots
2: yeah yeah um i I definitely I definitely want to make sure that I avoid uh a lot of the pitfalls that sword and sorcery has had in the past, especially uh when it relates to women or uh just uh people from other climes yeah yeah definitely like a lot of racial problems there and just. Yeah, mischaracterization of other... And and I try to get into that both in the fiction and I address that in the art as well. And I've uh, had some moments, not horrible moments or anything like that, but where I'm like, let's change this up a bit here. Let's maybe... I'm not against things like, say, nudity. In fact, I, I just... Mentally trying to tally up if I had a naked character in every single one of my stories, but like I want to avoid people being put in or naked under one cloth. Yeah, yeah. I will put in the the uh, the Vallejo Triangle, you know, mm-hmm. where right. uh, the woman is grasping right. the leg. Of course, so many have disappeared over so many yes, years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Vallejo Science triangle? will
1: never explain truly the Vallejo Triangle. I feel <laughs> um, so. Besides the the ongoing uh, periodical or magazine Mac- or or uh, uh, stamp wound or whatever you characterize yeah. characterize it, at, what's the next what's the next mountain to climb? What's the next thing that uh, you're gonna? That, you, know, you're, you said you were looking at coming back to uh, the Jenga mechanic. Is are you building us a a magical um, uh, uh, Jenga of? Uh, spies fighting vampires because I will cut you <laughs> no you no
2: I? or are you um,
1: uh, or, or what's what's the next uh, epidiah magic you also of course did Time and Temp another fun yes. game
2: yes I think well I, one thing that's on my schedule that doesn't have to do Jenga is the uh, project that I'm calling Linkin Green right now which is the Robin Hood one uh, Right. so happy that I started getting into that and then I realized, wait, almost all of this stuff is public domain. This is amazing. Um,
1: Howard Pyle is your
2: art director. Oh my god. (laughs) Like, I just throw a Howard Pyle image up and just be like, I'm writing this game and people are like, barfing money into my hands and nobody's barfed any money into my hands yet. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Kids at home, you know, use sanitizer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to do that and that one is another veer in a different direction. I'm trying to kind of uh, played to m- my more traditional game sensibilities, but uh, in an odd way. Like I want to uh, definitely have levels right. and hit points, but mm-hmm. the, they're not going to mean necessarily the same thing as
1: so not interoperable with your favorite old school. Right. Club. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's Still going to be its own weird yeah. little magic thing. Yeah. Right. That's
0: so. Final question. Uh, you said that the sword and sorcery genre is. Uh, Uh, Mixable with anything. So what Western would you like to see remade as a sword and sorcery movie? Oh, that's a good one.
2: The first one that popped in my mind wasn't even a Western, though. Bad Day at Black Rock was the first one that popped into my mind, which has... That's Western enough. Yeah,
1: it's in Northern California, that's in the West.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and it follows that sort of pattern where... Right, it's it's the the marshal who comes
1: into town and discovers the town. It, it, it's a kind of a Western noir, but more noir than Western, but yeah. in a Western moral sensibility. Right, and
0: the the original film is a little dialogue driven. And you could just replace that with some guys getting sorted. Right. Yeah. Well, exactly basically,
1: that. as Eastwood does in you know uh, High Plains Drifter.
0: Yep. Well, thank you so much. Thank Jeff. you. I uh, really appreciate your swinging by on pre Con day. Thanks. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's only
1: rulebook for Delta Green, the role playing game, tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agency that will help
0: and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab
1: the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at
0: RPG Now. It is time once again to wend our way up the cobweb stairs where we wave to the glowering portrait of Madame Blvatsky. She's going to warm to us eventually, I swear. And we head on in to the cozy parlor where sits the consulting occultist wearing his best smoking jacket. And he is ready to satisfy the demands of Patreon backer Craig Maloney, who would like to know more about Jacob Boom. And when I uh, did the little bit of uh, initial research that I do in order to lead Ken along on his much vaster corpus of research, my crest fell because I saw that yet again we are dealing with a Christian mystic. And my (laughs) response to uh, Christian mystics in uh, the consulting occultist category, or I guess sort of just in general, is kind of a... So, uh, Ken, you're really going to have to be an advocate uh, for Craig Maloney, because he surely must have a great reason for asking about Jacob Boehm. Uh, and this is a Lutheran Christian mystic. So that's, uh, I-, I love the Lutherans because they're unexciting. Uh, so uh, so anyway, he lived from uh, 1575 to uh, 1624. Uh, he went through uh, 25 years of his life before His amazing, shattering occult experience where he saw a sunbeam hit a pewter dish. Ken, make that exciting. (laughs) Make that exciting. Well, as
1: you say, the reason it's exciting is because of the reason that you love the Lutherans, that they're not exciting. And when you have been not exciting by government fiat for (laughs) four generations, people will even put up with visions from a pewter dish just to get some fun in their lives. Uh, Yes, uh, Jacob Burma is a Christian mystic. He has... The vision of uh, light on a pewter dish, which tells him basically the same thing it told Newton, only without math, that um uh, uh light and matter are the same, that both are emanations from God, and that God, therefore, is present in nature in a way that perhaps Orthodox Lutheranism does not hold, and that you can read the hand of God in all of nature, all of the stars, all of the planets, which is standard good old... Paracelsian belief that, um, uh, the, the created world is also a text that you can study to learn awesome stuff. And so the, the interesting thing qua interesting is that Berma kind of makes all this stuff up himself in that nothing comes out of pre existing mysticism. None of it comes from the Christian Kabbalists. None of it comes from the other traditions of prophetic or alchemical talk. He basically has Paracelsus is his is his guy and then luther and so if you sort of mush up paracelsus and luther and you add a visionary component you get bermanism and i think that's what made uh the germans and then the english to the extent that they were super excited by burma is because he provides them with sort of a a lot of little fiddly bits and that's your 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 luthery part and your paracelsus part All in a, in a, in a large, I don't want to say simple, but let's say elegant, mystical vision. And that's more your Luthery part. And so it, it uh, ties them together in a way that makes it more exciting to study the Bible, because you know that now you can have a beautiful prophetic vision, just like Ezekiel does, or just like St. John of Patmos does, and you can have these visions, and the capacity for individual mysticism and visionary is the big thing, I think, that gets the Burmist movement going, because it's not that his book is particularly interesting, although... <laughs> <laughs> when people read the aurora they were crazy for him to finish it and i would have been on the other side of that and equation. and it was
0: controversial too right that he yeah. just wrote this he didn't he decided not to publish it and somebody else got a hold of the manuscript and went ahead and published nobleman, it on him noblemen always reckon things which is like the the number one fear of every beginning author is that someone will steal your ideas and and publish them and that happened to him and 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 people were upset about this Very sensible Lutheran thing he was saying? Yeah,
1: because because, um, uh, he was saying things that are certainly arguable within a Lutheran construct and um, possibly heretical, depending on how uh, ticked off you are at shoemakers writing books of theology. And it turns out professional theologians really hate that.
0: Right. Well, this (laughs) definitely makes sense in the German context of everybody has their professional role and their accreditation and you don't Things happening without accreditation, that explains the whole controversy
1: right there. And so, he is the guy who sort of takes uh, Paracelsus' doctrine of signatures and turns that into sort of mainstream mystical thought. And what is the... uh, The doctrine of signatures is that if, for example, that God has left signatures of his action everywhere. And so, if you have a plant that looks like a kidney, it'll be good for healing problems with your kidneys. And if you have a plant that looks like a hand, it's good for healing problems with your hand. Right. So, if you want to have
0: a mystical vision, you don't have to wait for angels to appear and speak to you in Enochian and tell you to wife swap, but... No, you do not. You just go down to a brook, and you see how pretty the brook is, and there's your vision of, there's God right there. Exactly. God is
1: right there, glancing light-like off the brook. And one of the things that Burma does is he coins, possibly, the word theosophy, he calls himself a theosopher not a philosopher but a theosopher um so he has godly wisdom not the love of wisdom the mortal love of wisdom so that um is is you know that's something and a lot of the people and as you imply that sort of back to nature uh, uh, communion with god in the in the in the wildy woods spirit by the brooks and peter dishes uh becomes a very strong part of pietism the general belief that you have to get away from the filthy city and just pray and and not pester anyone, and God will make you happier. Uh, and that becomes uh, the impetus for a lot of colonies of Germans who leave Germany and go to America, Pennsylvania especially, but there's are Bremenist colonies all over sort of the middle Atlantic states. Um, and I suspect that some of those Bremenist colonies may have wound up in our good old upstate New York, although I know that they did in Pennsylvania and there may have been uh, drifting back and forth. But Burma becomes a giant thing. I mean, there's a full, all of Burma's works are published in English in 1683, I want to say. Maybe not in English, but in England in 1683. And they have like little fold over, um, uh uh, 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 plates that you can unfold the beauty and, and majesty of God's creation and, and look at all the little diagrams that tell you what kind of powers all the, all the planets have and whatnot. And so it's, it's a really big deal. And then he sort of just drops out of existence in, um, uh, in, in English, uh, um, magic and sensibility. Uh, and occasionally people will mention him, but it'll either be in the sort of, oh yeah, I read Burma, uh, kind of way, or they would say, well, unlike Burma, I have a better, more rigorous understanding of magic nonsense. And so he was sort of used as a little bit of a whipping boy. The Swedenborgians didn't like him because the Swedenborgians had their own direct revelation. And they and didn't they had, need... like
0: angels and stuff.
1: Exactly. Proper angels, not stupid light beams. And so uh, they didn't like Burma. And so he sort of gets sidelined a little bit. There are Burmanist movements or Beminist movements, as they were called in, in England, um, that were called Beminist or called themselves feminist, but were more distinguished by not being super feminist. In they, they they would say much like Marxist movements that begin by pointing out all the ways that they differ from Marx. These guys would do the same sort of thing, and um and so those guys wind up being influential in the foundation of socialism because a very uh, important feminist named Greaves shows up and pesters Robert Owen at the beginning of socialism, and so some of that. Uh, everything will go along great if you just get away from the filth uh, attitude was already in there. And I think that that may have strengthened some of that sort of desire for microstructures and mysticism that a lot of the socialist movement wound up with, especially in the 19th century.
0: And was the way that he sort of re- redirected the mystical impulse toward the practical real world of uh, pewter dishes and babbling brooks, was that uh, foundational in any way in the uh, Enlightenment? Um, it probably didn't hurt, but I think the Enlightenment, um, preferred to sort of go
1: back to the old, uh, the, you know, the proper Paracelsianism of if there's going to be all this stuff, there's going to be math. And, uh, it's not until the Romantics that you really get back to Babbling Brooks just themselves, right, not right. the math of bab- Babbling Brooks as being the big deal. And of course, the Romantics, much like Burma, are a reaction against the, uh, the, the dry, the perceived dry intellectual culture of the time. So Burma is maybe infra influential on the Romantics, although I don't know that a lot of the Romantics ever read him, although being Germans, they might have.
0: Right. And supposedly he's also an influence on Rosicrucianism and his thought goes through different other, perhaps more interesting Although the Rosicrucianism is borderline interesting at best, too. He um, also
1: influences, I should point out, Martinism, which is a sort of a Christian mysticism that is directed politically more in France. And those are the guys that St. Germain, uh, the historical one, warned people against saying, these guys are too political, they're going to screw everything up. And so, um, uh, Martine de Pasquale is who it's named after. Um, and, uh, and Martinism is, uh, this, uh, is, is another very Burmanist, uh, movement. And it's sort of, again, a precursor, if you will, uh, to socialism in some ways, although it's much more magical than socialism usually lets itself be.
0: Okay. So we've got, uh, his Christian mysticism is distinguished by the fact that it is, uh, even more sort of quotidian than other Christian mysticisms. Uh, what are his superpowers? Um, Burma's superpowers would be sort
1: of your Dr. Manhattan type superpowers, right? Because he is all about the unity of everything. So Burma is going to be able to look at a drop of water and perceive the Niagara as Sherlock Holmes says, but he's also going to be able to look at the drop of water and perceive the hand of God. Um, it's kind of Blake, actually there's, there's a good bit of Blake in Burma or Burma in Blake. Although I don't again, know if Blake ever read it. Um, so Burma has got. That sort of Dr. Manhattan, everything can be perceived at once type ability, although I don't think that he can grow to giant size and smash stuff.
0: Right. And he's probably
1: more modestly attired and less bad. Oh yes. And is and he wears shoes because he's a he's a shoemaker.
0: He's he's well uh kitted out in shoes. Doesn't wander around with his big blue wang hanging out. Um so, uh if there's a uh, copy of his book Aurora that is the MacGuffin in your adventure, what does that adventure look like? <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's See, so sad. I told you to, to advocate for Craig's question here yet. I,
1: I am, I am. But, uh, but Aurora is not what you want to be making the MacGuffin. What you want is because he wrote so much stuff, what you want to do is you want to find one of his more, more minor works. So, he, he, for example, he has a, a document called 177 Theosophic Questions with Answers to 13 of Them. <laughs> Oh, so he was the original Buzzfeed. He was. He was. You won't believe, uh, the answer to number nine. You <laughs> won't believe what I saw in this Peter dish. So you would, so you would have a Burmanist, uh, document that, uh, that was suppressed by him that would be, um, uh, you could call it the nine more questions or the nine further questions. And then those questions are the ones that, like, now that I've perceived the unity of all things under God, what do I do with it? And that would be the sort of, oh, that is, you know, Sort of Burma um, maybe prefiguring Heisenberg, right that the observed uh is changed by the observer, and so once Burma has given you the ability to observe everything through the eye of God and understand god's role in everything, you can then step into god's shoes in a way, the shoes of course being the cobbler joke ha <laughs> ha anyway, um you can step into god's shoes and you can alter the The fact of the observed by your observation. And maybe the first one is sort of just on quantum effect. So you can look at a computer and see what it's doing and, and read stuff off of it without, you know, typing in it. And then at further levels of question, as you answer more of them, you get more ability to alter seemingly quantum events until you're actually beginning to alter macroscopic events. And so you can look at someone and give them cancer, or you can look at someone and cure their cancer, which is certainly what Burma would be doing with it. Not the other way, but you would sort of take that notion of observational, uh, revelation and of the unity of all creation and you would weaponize it and that would be a thing and you would hide it in his vast quantity of materials and then you might be digging around in, you know, uh there might be some radical socialist movement that uh fringed off of Robert Owen and has been keeping it secret and is, you know, constantly denouncing every other socialist movement as wrong and they're the guardians of this of this manuscript or they've lost it and now they're coming after you in their weird uh 19th century vocabulary.
0: So does that just about uh cover everything Craig wants to know about Jacob Bema?
1: Um I can't believe that um uh I, I think it covers any, everything that everyone wants to know about Jacob Burma, unless they are a Lutheran mystic, in which case, good for you. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know that there's a lot more to Burma himself. He was a pretty regular guy. Um, like I say, that was part of the, the, the draw of Burmanism is that you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have a fancy law degree. You don't have, you have know,
0: to be interesting.
1: You don't have to be interesting. <laughs> you can just be a common old shoemaker and sure enough, you can see God in a pewter dish just like anyone else can. So it's sort of a radical notion of the Lutheran notion of the priesthood of all believers taken to that sort of almost a Pentecostal level in which just anyone can set themselves up as a as an interpreter of the word of God. And, and that's sort of, you know, the, the thing that I guess uh, he does theologically.
0: So, uh, Patreon backers, if you would like us to discuss more Christian mystics on the show, you have to be at least at Craig's... Craig Maloney's uh, donation level, there's going to be a cutoff for discussion. <laughs> for Christian mystics. First of all, I'm not going to put any more Christian mystics on the list of my own accord. So these are only going to be Patreon backer questions. And you have to at least, uh, you have to meet or exceed uh, Craig's donation level, which of course is not a matter of public record, uh, in order to pose any more Christian mystic uh, questions. Because of course, can you you know what happens when this guy goes to the barber. What, when Burma goes to the barber? Yeah. What
1: happens when Burma goes to the barber? He, he gets asks, a Burma shave. Kid. He gets a
0: Burma shave. And see, see you next week, everybody. <laughs> On that exalted note. <laughs> Take care, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors.
1: Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask AskFegelm. ArcDream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such hallowed patrons as... Benjamin Blanding. Graham Wills. Jeremy Forbing, Phil
0: Bailey. And Rob Abrazado. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.